Welcome to episode eight of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's story is all about taking control after a cancer diagnosis. It's almost like everything that you work towards, everything that you you have this bubble in your world that everything's gonna, you know, you're gonna recover, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that. And then when you get the diagnosis, everything that you've got inside this bubble and it bursts, you try and grasp hold of what little bits are falling away and it, it's it's just so difficult to try and keep everything together. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Hello, everybody. A huge welcome to episode eight of the Life Stories podcast. As ever, thank you very much for joining me. Today, I'd like to make a quick appeal for guests. I'd love to hear from anyone who would like to share their story of how they've tackled a life issue. It might be surviving a divorce, winning the lottery, reforming their life following a period in prison, sailing off around the world to find themselves or anything else in between and beyond. My wish is that by sharing these incredible stories, we all learn that we really can cope with whatever life throws our way and take control of what we really want from our lives. I'm often asked where I get my guests from, and I always say the same thing everywhere. Every day, all around us, there are ordinary folk doing amazing things. So if you have a story to share, don't be shy. There are others that could really benefit from hearing from you. Please do drop me a line at contact at rediscoveryofme.com. So let's get on with today's show. My guest on today's show has travelled an incredible journey over the last 12 years. In April 2011, at the age of 30, Pete Lloyd was diagnosed with osteosarcoma of the left femur, a bone cancer that can be incredibly tough to diagnose. Following an eight-month gruelling chemotherapy regime, which he endured alongside his wife and young children, Pete concluded his treatment in 2012, but his story was far from over. Five years later, having coped as best as he could with a stick and crutches, Pete made the difficult decision to have his left leg amputated, having lost trust following a fall in the garden whilst playing with his kids. Pete decided he couldn't go on anymore. He wanted to reclaim his fitness, his life and his freedom. Today, he is a wheelchair racing athlete and an ambassador for the Bone Cancer Research Trust. Candid, human and a massive advocate for asking for help. He is the very wonderful Mr. Pete Lloyd. I am just so, so wonderfully grateful for having you here. It's great that you, you give, you, you've given up so much of your time because you're having me a lot of your time to come and uh, talk about your story. It's absolutely fine. Thank you very much, Pete. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your past then, and I hate to say it, but prior to your cancer diagnosis. So prior to the cancer diagnosis, so in, in 2007, so a year after getting married and a month after my son was born, I fell over at work and that's where it all started. Mm -hmm. I, it, I was diagnosed with a benign bone tumour called uh, fibrous dysplasia. This after several years, so four years, and several operations, uh, never went away. Uh, it kept coming back, it never felt right. And until eventually in 2011, as you say, I was diagnosed with a high-grade osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer, which is exceptionally rare. So your fall at work, was that triggered by the presence of this benign tumour that you had in your leg? No, the fall at work was a pure accident and... It was best described by a, a, a physician in a DWP work assessment yeah. as um, it's like dropping a pencil right. where the outside of the pencil doesn't shatter but inside the lead's broken. Right. Um, and they think that they're not 100% that that is what caused the, a, a metabolic bone disease, which is the, uh, the fibrous dysplasia. And in exceptionally rare cases, that can turn cancerous. Right. And unfortunately, in 2011, mine did. So you you you'd endured four years of 
real difficulty as a result of the injury that you'd had lots of pain discomfort yeah. like you say numerous medical procedures yeah and, and, and we'd got a very young child as well as I said mm. it was it was a month after the, uh, our son was born and then in 2009 our daughter was born as well so we've got two very young children and the struggles that we had being a young family and, and me being quite literally off my feet um, for four years was 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 very difficult See, my wife is my rock. She she's she kept everything together, and everything that I've done to this day is to make sure that I'm there for my kids and um, that I can give my time and myself to them. But yeah, it has it has been exceptionally difficult at times. Mm. So you've been through four difficult years where. At times you haven't been able to work, or other times you had, you had medical procedures, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Four years later then, you were given a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I believe you were, you were I've got down here, that you were driving through Manchester with your wife. You'd just been out yeah. shopping when your surgeon called. I'd had an operation to, to remove my fever and have a, an internal prosthesis point. And I was recovering quite well from that. And I was I was a passenger, my wife was driving. And uh, we'd just come back from being at the Lowry, driving through Manchester, and we were just going past the Tesco at Gordon. And the phone rent, and it was it was my surgeon from, from Birmingham at the orthopaedic, um, asking if I was okay to talk and if I was sat down. <laughs> and uh, so we pulled in, I said, yeah, it's fine, we'll... We'll just pull into the, the car park and Kate will take the kids to uh, into Tesco and I'll have the conversation. Um, and yeah, I got told that it was a, a high-grade osteosarcoma and I was due I was due into the Christie in two weeks' time and all my appointments and everything had already been made. Wow. How does that feel? It's almost like everything that you work towards, everything that you, you have this bubble and this, uh, in your world that everything's going to, you know, you're going to recover, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And then when you get the diagnosis, everything that you've got inside this bubble and it bursts, you try and grasp hold of what little bits are falling away and it, it's it's just so difficult to try and keep everything together. We were both just numb. Mm. Both absolutely numb. And I don't think the realisation really hit until... I got my my Hickman line in to to start the chemotherapy. So the phone call arrived as you were out and about and your appointment started two weeks later. Yes. So was it there a two-week window before you were went even anywhere near a doctor or were you did you see somebody the next day or No, it, it was it was a two-week <clears> window. It was to start all the the testing so um I had a heart scan, chest scan. This was Ex- during the two weeks. This is during the two weeks. Yeah, yeah so um Bone density scans, radio, uh, radiations, um, radiation dye injected in to see bone density and everything. A heart scan, kidney function, liver function, all of them testing you're doing, and then you have a, a an operation to have a, a your Hickman line put in. It's um, it's basically it's a port straight into your artery and your neck into your heart, so that the chemotherapy goes straight into your blood system. Wow, gosh. I think this is something, and talk, I'm so grateful that you really genuinely heartfelt,ly grateful that you're here to talk about this because I think there's so much fear yeah. associated with being told those words. I'm afraid it's cancer. That it's really, I think, empowering to hear from somebody like you that here you are in front of us now, and as hard as it was, there's there's a lot of stigma stigma attached to the word cancer as if some cancers are treatable, some cancers aren't, and it it's the the way that it's worded and perceived in the media and, and everything that puts the absolute fear in people um, that it is something to be worried about, that it is something to be absolutely scared of, and I get that, mm-hmm. but it's almost getting to the point of being irrational. Yeah, I think that's a really good way. I feel totally irrational about it, I'll be quite honest. I've never heard those words. I've never had to sit in that chair where you've sat. But I bet you're exceptionally worried about oh, yeah. getting it. Yeah, Yeah, and I think since I became a parent in particular, you know, hitting middle age, 
I now have friends. I now know several people, you know, and I do think the fear associated with it is, is at times like utterly overwhelming. Yeah, it's when you are going through it and when you do see people who you are going through treatment with or you see your friends or relatives or, and, and family who, who pass away from it, it does bring it home that it's still not treatable like a cold or mm. or anything else or an infection or something else that you get that's you can just take a pill and you're fine it, mm. it, there are long lasting effects from it you, your mental health your physical health you the way that you perceive the world the way that you act it's all affected the way people act around you mm. um the word that people use around you and everything changed everything changes mm. even though you don't want it to it does. I think currently it's talked about in the wrong way. Uh, everything's taking the fight to everything's about the battle or be won or lost. And I, I, I don't like them words. I, I don't think it's a battle that you win or lose. I think that it's a baton you carry and you pick up the baton if it is dropped or that if it's you know it is a relay race it's it's constantly and, and until we get to the finishing line mm. um and, and ultimate that there is a cure found mm. i think it's a relay race it's not a war mm. it's not a battle mm. and it could be interesting to, for, for listeners to hear the journey of your story because i know when we've spoken before you you said to me that ironically where you are at in your life now you're the most successful you've ever been yes yeah. We can come to that in a moment because yeah. I think your story is so complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you obviously then were admitted to the Christie and you yes. were told that you had a 20% chance of survival. Mm-hmm. That was without treatment. Yes. So were you afraid at that point? I was, but you kind of just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my, my wife and my mum in the, in the consultancy room and my oncologist was exceptionally matter-of-fact about it. And I don't, I, I don't think there was any other way that he could have could have said it, because it was just, you've been diagnosed with a high-grade osteosarcoma. Without chemotherapy, you have a 20 chance, 20% chance of survival for five years. It's mm-hmm. not a 20% chance of survival overall. It's a 20% chance of survival to make it to five years. Mm-hmm. Without treatment or you, with the chemotherapy, it's 60%. And it, it put like that, it is a no-brainer. But it, my, my obviously my wife and my mum took it exceptionally, a lot harder than I did because I kind of zoned out a little bit mm-hmm. at that moment in time and was just thinking, well, I've got to do it. That's, that's what I've got to do, that's what I've got to do. And it wasn't a case of I'm not going to take it, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. At that moment, I think a, a, a switch flicked in my head and I was like, right, it's a job. I've got a job to do. I'll I'll concentrate on this. And then we wandered around the Christie for a bit and then we found the the, um, the counselling room just to chat over a few things. And and we, we all agreed at that moment in time that whatever is said during my treatment is not to be taken personally because it affects everybody differently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was arguments, there was fallouts and, you know, days were vile, but none of it was taken personally Mm. at all because we were all struggling and Mm. emotions were running high. So it affected all of us in a completely different way. And I turned very selfish during that period of time and I don't think I could have done it without turning very selfish because the, the regime that you have for bone cancer is so intense. So you're in for three weeks, out for two, in for three weeks, out for two, in for three weeks, out for two, over six cycles. And it destroys you, it absolutely destroys your body. So even when you're not having treatment, you're exceptionally poorly. And there were times where I'd finished my treatment and I would be in the Christie having IV antibiotics for a severe sepsis. I'd uh, I was in having platelets for bleeding. You get nosebleeds, and there, except it is very dangerous. As soon as your platelets drop, you start getting a nosebleed that doesn't stop for an hour. You have to go in. You have your platelets checked, mm-hmm. and generally, the the below 
a certain level, then you have to have a platelet transfusion. Hemoglobin levels, which is blood, your oxygen levels and everything in your blood, that can drop, so you have a blood transfusions. And you have all them, you, you get your sepsis, you get, you get your fevers, you get lethargic, you have severe chemo fatigue, and you have days where you just have to just stay in bed. And that's all you can do. You can't even lift your arms or your legs or or anything. It, it, your mind is willing, but your body says absolutely not. Mm. And and bone cancers are particularly difficult cancer. I, I read as part of my research for the show. I read quite a lot of information on the Bone Cancer Trust website. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. The, the stories of the people on there they really affected me. So I, I really thank you for pointing me in that direction. I didn't know much about bone cancer before, but I read that treatment for it isn't advancing at the same rate as other cancers and that it can be really hard to diagnose. It's exceptionally difficult to diagnose. There is not a lot of awareness or even, it's not even taught in medical school. Mm -hmm. in, in four years of medical school, there is a paragraph in a book for the um, trainees to read. So there's not really even anything in the medical books mm -hmm. you have to specialize to learn about it gps probably won't even have a diagnosis of a, of a, of a bone cancer in their in their surgery in, in their working career mm -hmm. they'll have never had a diagnosis of it on any of their patients so it's nearly always the last thing to be thought of it's either shin splints or growing pains or right. something else it's always the last thing that is thought of and the Bone Cancer Research Trust, and, and there they have a, a GP portal where they can log in and they can find information. With They have the leaflets, they send them to uh, hospitals, to practices, to other healthcare professionals. It's all on their website anyway. But So this is a case where education really is absolutely critical. Absolutely, absolutely. And with the amount of funding available as well for bone cancer research in general from, from the bigger charities, uh, from, from like last year, let's say there's £697 million for research. Mm -hmm. Of that, only 242000 went to bone cancer. Wow. Whereas the Bone Cancer Research Trust raised £1.4 million and £1.2 of that went to research. Fantastic. And as I say, we will make sure to link to them in the show notes below. So let's go back to the story then. So you had six cycles of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And what happened at the end of that? So at the end end of my chemotherapy on the 12th of January. And that was um, 2012. That was 2012, yeah. yeah my, my chemo got delayed a, a few months because I was, I was exceptionally ill. And in 2012, in the February, I needed a hip trans a hip replacement. So I'd had the femoral replacement in 2011, had my chemotherapy, finished my chemotherapy, was in pain again, um, and went down to, to Birmingham for a for an X-ray just to find out what was going on. And I bore a hip, a, a hole through my uh, acetabulum. From what's your acetabulum? Your acetabulum is your hip socket. Right. So you've got your your femur and your femoral head, and that fits inside your acetabulum. Yeah. And I bore a hole through that through trying to be fit during my chemotherapy and, and going to the gym and cycling and everything. So, Gosh. so throughout the whole journey throughout from 2007 to 2012, I tried to be as fit as possible. Um, and that's using the gym or using physiotherapy or swimming. Mm -hmm. And obviously having two children at the time as well, I was, I was trying yeah, to keep up. about after the kids. Exactly, trying to keep up with them. It was a case of being off my feet again, in the whole of 2012 after the after the, uh, the hip replacement. That was the most difficult part of the surgery because I was okay after my femoral replacement and my chemotherapy, but the hip replacement, because I'd had so many operations previously, meant that my, my leg was so weak that I couldn't rely on it. Right. So I was always going to have a stick or crutches, mm -hmm. um, and that's what I used to get around with from 2012 to 2017. Right. Um, How does it feel, Pete? How do you cope with, I don't know the phrase to use, I can only describe as a catalogue of physical 
impairments one after another after another. So we start in 2007 when you had your fall. Mm-hmm. You then had an operation four in 2008, years. an operation in 2009, an operation in 2010, an operation in 2011, and an operation in 2012. In the midst of that, a cancer diagnosis. How, how do you cope psychologically as a young man? Because this isn't meant to happen. No, cancer's an old person's disease, isn't it? It's but, but and, the kind and, of in, the physical the injuries yeah. that you're talking about. The amount of times that you can ne- get knocked off your feet is, I think, <laughs> it did, it really did take it out of me. It, it was very, very difficult. But I have a very, very strong support network around me and I yeah. I asked for help. I, I, I'm a massive advocate for asking for help and making sure that the people that you have around you are either there for your support or they can take you out of that situation so it's not even related to what you're going through so you can just be you so uh, you use the gym I joined the gym with Glenn and I used the hospital's physio I used to use Willow Wood. Um, which is a hospice. Yeah, which is a hospice in, in Ashton. Um, they had a hydrotherapy pool, so I used to use their hydrotherapy pool. So were you, because I suppose it's about, and I think this is one of the things I've been learning through through doing my podcasting, the ability to be vulnerable with other people. Yeah, absolutely. It does not, I think that's you can be very hard-faced about it, yeah. and I was very hard-faced. I, I took my diagnosis and I took my treatment and that was, I had to concentrate on that. Yeah. If it was something else that is in supporting us as a, as a family and helping us stay together, that was the family network, that was our friend network, that was everyone that came around us to, to take the kids out, to, take, to talk to Kate, to, yeah. to allow us to be a family, whereas... The treatment side of it and my my recovery, I took very selfishly, but I asked for help. Yeah. To get me through it. If that, Is it's it really? Diffi- it's difficult to explain. It's really difficult to explain. I find it curious that you use the word selfish because I can't imagine it is selfish. Isn't that just a battle for survival? And that's. I can't think of any other word. I don't know because it is such a a, a tight kind of regime that it really does take it out of you and even the operations where I'm off my feet and I have to regain physical strength again I had to go to the gym I had to train I had to get myself up in the morning and the struggle with the inability to do things that I want to be able to do I really struggled with and that and that really did play on 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 my mental health but when me and Kate did argue over it and, and about me not kind of being as, a bit, well, being part of the family really, is it, we, we did fall out a lot over it because there was things that I physically couldn't do and I wanted to be able to do them and that frustrated me, which mm. then it, I took it out on, on her and, mm. and the kids and it, it, it became quite a vicious cycle. And you just have to break that cycle and... If you don't do something for a period of time, it becomes a habit of not being able to, not doing it. It becomes a habit of feeling a little bit, you know, feeling down, feeling depressed over it. And then you feel anxious that, oh, if I do it, I'm, I'm going to fail at it. And that'll make me feel even worse. So you don't even bother trying. Mm-hmm. So some days it was just a case of staying in bed and feeling sorry for myself. Whereas breaking that cycle after asking for help at the gym, having somebody to be able to say, right, come on, get up, you're doing this today, helps. It, it, I can't tell you just how much of a difference having somebody who gets what you're going through, is compassionate about it, but can see you are able to do something if you push yourself, if you just try. And it is that first step of trying that is the most difficult part to get over. And to do that so many times, because I did it in 2007, I did it in 2008, 9, 10, 11 and 12, to take that first step again so many times, 
doesn't get any easier. Mm. It really doesn't. But you have to have that support network around you. And if you haven't got it around you, ask. Mm. There are lots and lots of people out there that want to help, that are able to help. And even if it's just your best friend, just say to them, look, I'm really struggling. Can you help me? It will change that cycle. It will change it and it will make you become more aware of focusing on not what you can't do, but what you could do. Mm. Uh, Even Mm. if it's just going down, if it's just making the bed or going downstairs, doing the washing, pegging the washing out, Mm. just getting a routine of doing something. Mm. All guests on my podcast so far have said the same thing. It's almost like, you know, you exist behind this locked door and actually when you open the door and ask for help, there's always somewhere on the other side of it, you know. Absolutely. And I think in this world at the moment, we, we turn on the news, we see in the media so much negative stuff, yet there it's a corny phrase, but the milk of human kindness really is everywhere. Yeah, it really is. There's a lot of people out there that are willing to help and it is the most difficult thing Mm. to do Mm. asking for help and and accepting that you are vulnerable Mm. but you have to and we're all human so chemotherapy concluded yep you then had a period of oh you tell me so chemotherapy concluded 2012 had my replacement and 2014 I decided that I would go back to work because I've been off so long that I would go back to work. So 14, 15, 16 and 17, I was I was working. And in 2014, after chemotherapy and everything, our third child was born, Annabelle. And we thought that that would then be, right, fresh start, we are now moving forward. Um, so physically pretty much back to normal at this physically point? Physically pretty much back to normal. Three kids, working. Yeah, uh, well, normal as much as I could possibly be with a with with my hip replacement that didn't really work well, and on crutches and and, and my walking stick. But in two thousand seventeen, playing with my son in the back garden, I threw a, a tennis ball for him, and my leg collapsed, and the pain was horrific. Um, I went down to Birmingham again, and we discussed amputation, and. I said I wanted it. I wanted an elective amputation from the hip. Um, Doing pretty much, I didn't want to have any revision surgery. I didn't want any more patching up, so to speak. I wanted the final chapter closing on that part Mm -hmm. of of my my life. And as, as long as I had my physical, biological leg attached to that was from 2007 to 2017, everything that I had gone through was attached to this leg and Mm. I physically hated it. Mm. I couldn't do what I wanted to do because of it. At the time, the doctor said to you that there was no clinical need for an amputation. So how how did you manage to work through that process with them? With there being no clinical need, they take x-rays and and, and MRIs to check for looseness and um, whatnot, but... In my case, it was surrounded with a lot of scar tissue, which hurt. It broke down every time I, I walked. And with the muscles in my leg being so weak, it used to dislocate as well. So I had to be very, very careful. The scar was always tender as well, so the kids couldn't sit on my leg. They couldn't come up and approach me from the left-hand side just in case they knocked it and, and, and caused me pain. And the pain as well was causing me to be exceptionally grumpy. And it was affecting us as a family again. I became a bit of a recluse. I wasn't socialising because I was in pain. Mm -hmm. And it just all came flooding back. Everything again attached to this leg. And I I couldn't see myself continuing with it. it. It must in a way have been a little bit about taking control back as well because the leg dictated so much of your life exactly and I didn't want to be off my feet again it, the the operation that I had the revision and the surgery and everything that would have had to have been done in another 15 10 10 15 years anyway right so after five years yeah for it to kind of get to the point where I'm like right I don't want any more surgery doing at all on this leg it, it was 
it was bad but I had to get rid of it for my own mental health so what was it like afterwards the day of the amputation was just <laughs> I'd say it felt like a weight off my shoulders but it wasn't it was a weight off my hip um <laughs> it, it was just I don't know if I should laugh at <laughs> no no it, it was fine it, it felt like my leg was right through the bed you get this weird sensation um of where your leg should be because your mind your, mm. your brain has a, a body map of, mm-hmm. of of all your limbs and stuff and suddenly it's missing so it's like where is it so it could be you know it feels like it's either through the floor or straight up in the ceiling and thing mega weird but i wasn't in the amount of pain that i was in before the surgery before the amputation and that day i was up using my crutches the day after I was up using my crutches they got me a wheelchair I was up and down in the wheelchair on the ward so my recovery after the amputation I was only in hospital I had it on the 10th of October 17 and I was out again I was out about the 18th 19th but that was that was only due to me not having a wheelchair at home and and things I could have been home the same week Um, but I was in over the weekend and home on the Monday and it was just right. Let's let's go forward um, because no regret, no regret, no, absolutely none at all. Because I'd learned to pick myself up so many times, and I knew this would be the last time that I had to do it. I was more determined. I was I was far more headstrong than I've ever been to do anything mm. to recover mm. to get back on track. And to use all that experience that I'd got in the previous years of, of, of the diagnosis, of the treatment, of the, of, of the whole process that you go through. I contacted the, um, the Bone Cancer Research Trust and that's when I became one of their patient ambassadors mm-hmm. to, to use their platform to help people who are going through the diagnosis to, to signpost them to where they should be asking the questions mm-hmm. and what kind of questions you should be asking of the consultants and what to take with them and, and things like that. And that's where really everything else started coming together because once I got part of their that that community, the bone cancer community, the whole kind of world opened up. And I thought, well, I'm going to start raising some money for these because I was like, I quite like this. Um, you know, these people actually can help and they, they are changing that process that I've been through. And, and did the decision to have the amputation in part help open up your mind as well? Because yes. for the first time in years, you were pain-free. I was pain-free. I was looking forward to the... I, I, for the first time in seven years, I was able to sit on the floor and play with my kids. Wow. Without them fearing, running into my leg, and, and Annabelle being so young as well she used to just jump all over me so I had to kind of stop her from doing that but after the amputation absolutely not I just had to put a cushion over over the uh, over the residual part of my um, hip where the where the muscle's been repaired and everything over there but other than that there was no kind of limitations as to what play I could have with with my kids and I was just so relieved to not have the pain and then to be able to go well actually this has worked out better than I ever thought it could did you have your full support of your wife and your mum I had to in the decision I had to yeah when um when I had the original consultation with Birmingham when when they said there is no clinical need I had to do five things so I had to go to the limb centre and speak to their doctor I had to have counselling to make sure that I'm a sound man, that it is something that I have really, really thought about. I had to speak to a patient who's had a level of amputation at my level. I had to have pain consultation um, at Salford. I had that with a, a specialist pain consultant because they wanted to know that if they could take the pain away, mm. would I would I keep my leg? And, mm. and the answer was no, because I couldn't rely on it. It mm. was so weak. Mm. If I put my weight on it, it would collapse anyway. So mm. I couldn't do anything, even if I wasn't in pain. And the final thing I had to do was ring up for the appointment because I'd done everything that they'd asked me to do. I'd gone down to tell them that I'd done everything that I had to do. 
and they said yes they will do it but I'd not heard anything for a couple of weeks and I was like oh I've not heard anything let's see where they're up to with it and I, I rang up the secretary and she went right yes you're, you're on the list for the for the surgery now and that's when I knew that that test had I, I had to ring up for that for the appointment because they needed to know 100% that I was ready for it and I, I've not looked back since. Wow. Your wife must be <laughs> a remarkable woman. She really, yeah, she is. She's absolutely amazing. You know, you got a young guy, three kids, years, you know, whilst this is your story, this must be her story and your kids' story as well and your They get swamped in it, yeah, it's, every, it's everyone's. They get kind of swamped by my story, so to speak, but theirs is one that I've been trying to put into the limelight of the, the amount of support and the amount of attention and affection and that I've had from, from them and pushing us all forward and keeping us all together. I mean, it's been so hard on them and I can't ever imagine what it was like and this is where I was saying I had to get selfish because I couldn't think about that while I was going through my treatment because if I did I'd want to stop mm. I would want to stop treatment I would want to I wouldn't do any of it and that is where I had to kind of think very selfishly over it which is why I, I said about being selfish but whenever I was at home not having treatment or whenever I was at home and we were trying to do things as a family, we were together and, and Kate held us all together. When I looked away, whether it, I, you know, it, things could go to pot, but she tried so hard to keep everything together while I was there so that we could enjoy our time rather than just kind of wallowing and being upset over everything. Mm -hmm. we, we tried to do days out. We, every time we tried to do something together, we'd get somewhere and whether I was ill or felt well at the time, we started, there were days where we were going out and I'd turn in the car and it would be like, I can't do this. And we'd have to go home. The kids are disappointed. It was a case of, well, we'd get somebody to come and sit with me and we'd still and she'd still take the kids out so they wouldn't miss out and that's really important and were there people there to help and support Kate in that obviously your your network but just do loved ones of people like yourself receive specialist support as well there wasn't really anything that was about no we relied purely on family and friends right we didn't have specialist counseling we didn't have family support as such. We did have the social services family support come mm -hmm. come and help us with, with the kids. Mm -hmm. We had Homestar come and we had the Homestar. They allowed us to get Joshua into nursery earlier and yeah. childcare arrangements and things so that we could go to uh, the Christian. We could go yeah. and uh, together as, as and the kids would be looked after. But the only real kind of treatment and, and counselling that we've really had is is for the is for Joshua, um, who's my oldest, who when when he started school, I started my chemo. And it affected him probably the most. And he had counselling but didn't talk, wouldn't talk about it. Mm. And the counsellor was just like, we can't really do anything. So I think it's had a more profound effect on him than any of us. Mm. And that kind of makes me feel a bit guilty. I don't think you should feel guilty about that. Honestly, I don't. You know, I've, I've, I've never sat where you are. But, you know, you're an amazing dad. You're an amazing man. And what you describe as selfish, I think, is focused. You know? Thank you. No, it was it was diff it was partly selfish. <laughs> I don't think there's another. I don't think there's another word that can adequately describe it. Um, it's survival, Pete. Yeah, I don't think there's anything selfish about you whatsoever. You're now 
in a place where you race wheelchairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For Stockport wheelchair racing, and you're now classed as an athlete of part of Team Bones for Bone Cancer Research Trust. <laughs> Yeah, um, so yeah. Against all the odds of what was it you were called? A bit of a big lad. <laughs> so yeah, um, in 2018, I was in a pub with a friend, and we decided that we were going to do the Manchester Marathon for 2019. And I was like, "Yeah, if you do it, I'll do it." And then didn't really think anything of it, and I was just like, "Oh, okay, yeah." I just said I'll do a marathon. Signed up for it as well, so there was no backing out of it. <laughs> And I, I was like, oh, um, I've just signed up for a marathon. And I, I, I'd not really thought it through because I, I couldn't run it because obviously I've got no leg. How could I do it? Oh, I could walk it because I've got a prosthesis, but it'll take me about 30-odd hours, so I'm not going to do that. could crutch it. No, that that would hurt. So I'm going to do it. That was my thought process for about a week, and I completely forgot about it. And then September came around September 18 and I'd just been given a, a new prosthesis and thought oh I can't do the marathon on this either how am I going to do it so I got in contact with a friend who runs uh, Helen and she put me in contact with the Stockport wheelchair racing coach Rick Hoskins and I went down to meet him and because I'd not done real exercise or what I, I was fit but mm. not you know fit wheelchairs are exceptionally small light nimble things <laughs> and I turn up and oh you're a bit of a big lad <laughs> he's like yeah he says I don't know if you've got a chair for you so I was a bit like oh no did um, that hurt did that upset you no it, it, it was just like um I didn't really think this through <laughs> And it, it, it was that realisation that, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder than I thought. So I might have to just actually, you know, send in a, a thing saying, I'm really sorry, I, I can't compete. But one way or another, he managed to shoehorn me into the biggest chair that they've got. And um, I did one lap of, of the track. It's a 400 metre track. And it hurt. It really <laughs> hurt. I was cramping up everywhere. My arms were sore. It just absolutely broke me and he was like yeah it's going to be a bit of a difficult one this isn't it I was like yeah but I knew then that I had to do something mm. um, so I went back the following week and the week after and I went from doing one lap to two laps to three laps and Rick turns to me and says I oh, fancy doing the Liverpool 5k I was like when is he this is the end of October Oh, okay. Not really thinking it through either. And it's the first time I've done any any distance. So three laps of the track is, what, 1.2 kilometres, and that was difficult. I'd not gone up a hill. I'd not gone down a hill. I'd not really done anything. So I did the Liverpool 5K. And then the month after, in November, it was the Wilmslow 10K that I'd been entered for. Then I did that, and it was just... It was hard. At one point going up a hill, I, I, I stopped completely. I didn't have the energy to push or the power to push myself up the hill. So the cyclist that was at the side of me kind of just put his hand behind me so that I wasn't rolling back. Um, so, I could, so I could complete that. But I knew then being part of, of that sporting network and having people around me who are absolutely incredible and having yet another coach having somebody there to push somebody there to pick you up who tells you absolute no nonsense you're gonna do it and that for me was something that I needed and I think everybody needs that little person or, or the person on, on their shoulder telling them that you can do it no matter what you can do it and I ended up doing really well all through the winter out training with Helen Thornhill up and down the Bottoms Reservoir, out with Hugh on the Tissington Trail, which is a marathon distance to get the, the length in. And all this was in this big, big wheelchair, and it was heavy and it was slow. But I did the marathon, um, three hours, 18 minutes. So I did the, the Manchester Marathon, and that was raised, raised over £2,000 for the Bone Cancer Research Trust. And I thought I'd finish there, but I didn't. 
because I'd found something that meant so much because it was benefiting my physical health. I was feeling happier. It was benefiting my family life because I was getting fitter. I was finding it easier to wear my prosthesis, even though I was shrinking so much and my prosthetics couldn't keep up with me. Um, everything was benefiting from finding something that I absolutely love. So we had a discussion about me continuing and, and, and entering the, the Manchester 10K as like a cool down race. And then we'd take it from there where, where training was going to go. And I ended up doing the Manchester 10K in 44 minutes and I was like, no, I'm going to do it. Wow. I really want to do this. That is speedy. Um, we got my, Rick got my, a, a new chair and asked me to get classified. So we went down to Stoke Mandeville, got my classification as a T54 racer, which is a lower limb impairment, but I've still got core muscle. So yeah. I can. it's yeah. easier for me to turn around corners and control the chair and things. And then I absolutely love it. And it's benefiting me, it's benefiting the family. And because of it, I've set up like a little a special fund of the Bone Cancer Research Trust called Pushing for a Cure. So mm-hmm. all my racing I do for them. I've got my wheelchair painted in the BCRT colours, so I race in, in blue and orange. I've just taken it from doing something that I thought very little of in the very beginning to I can't not think about it. It is absolutely brilliant. And because of it, we have met the most incredible people that I have ever met. And the kids have as well. We went to um, Kirby to the, we got the Muller GP, put on by Hannah Cockcroft and Nate McGuire. And we went there and we've, we've, we've met so many world-class mm-hmm. athletes. Mm-hmm. And the kids are just in awe because they are with people like they see me as, mm. as you know disabled but they see me as as an athlete and, and i'm like you class me the same as them and it is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and they will just talk to anyone and i'd much rather have a child that will ask rather than stare they mm. will quite happily go up to someone and just talk to them mm. rather than you know, the the glance of, oh, ooh, can I talk to them? Can I not? Can mm. I do that? Can I not? They were running around. They were asking for autographs. They were, they were, I, I, I'm a massive advocate for if your child wants to know, let them know. Take the curiosity away mm. because they will grow up then mm. to have more compassion, more understanding of, of the struggles of people who can be more empathetic. And they'll be a lot more caring rather than, quite ignorant to other people's needs and the world needs more people like that. If you had to give your biggest piece of life advice to your fellow humans, Mm -hmm. what would that be? Ask for help. Doesn't matter on the situation. Ask for help. It's... There's the old saying of a problem shared is is a problem. And it is so true if you talk and ask for help you will get it and that makes everything so much easier and without it it's very 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 lonely and very difficult thank you Pete I almost feel like I'm meeting you kind of halfway through your story in that your future is just kind of unfurling you've Mm -hmm. got this new life with all these incredible new chapters ahead of you. And I, I really hope that in the future we can meet up again and, and do an, another edition of the podcast to, oh, to cool. see where yeah. you're up to, because it's been a real battle trying to get your story into it, such a defined period of time because you've got so much to talk about. But honestly, it's really heartwarming and I know you don't like the word inspirational, so I'll use your word motivational to hear you speak because of the candid way in which you talk about something that scares us all. And Mm -hmm. your kind of cancer was one of the most complex and that against a backdrop of such a long history of injury. So it's been really wonderful to have you on the show today. And I have no doubt that 
we'll do it again in the future and then Absolutely. you can come up, update us again with your uh, next batch of uh, <laughs> wheelchair <laughs> success so where can listeners find out more about you I'm on Twitter as Hopalonglydy. That's my <laughs> so it's Hopalong and then double L O Y D Y. Yeah. Um, or they can go onto the Bone Cancer Research Trust uh, website and there's patient stories on there, and I'm on there. Or they can go onto the uh, find out more about the special funds and, and pushing for a cure on there. But I do urge people to read through patient stories, uh, download the information packs yeah. and everything they've got on there. If if they've got any worries or any concerns please feel free to get in contact. There is, there's a free phone number on there as well. Or just send me a message on, or, or tweet me. Or And people could obviously contact you through me as well. Absolutely. Contact at mediscoveryofme.com. I'll make sure that we put all of that information in the show notes below the podcast. Pete Lloyd, it has been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. Pete's story is one that is imbued with the stuff that many of us worry about the most. Being ill for a protracted period of time, receiving a cancer diagnosis and enduring years of medical treatment. I think it's common to be really afraid of how we'd cope in such a situation, of hearing those words, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Clearly, we have much that we can learn from people like Pete. His story is raw and human. He shared with us the blunt reality of what it's really like to endure treatment for bone cancer. In his own words, Pete picked up the baton. Pete's key learning point that we all need to ask for help is firmly at the centre of his story. His wife, his children, his mum, his wider family and friends put their arms around this remarkable man when he needed them the most. Let none of us ever take that for granted. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the show. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you on the next edition of Life Stories, where we'll explore male mental health. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough. <laughs>